ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. It's known, for example, that if you live near a main artery, a very busy highway, and in particular if you're near a set of traffic lights where cars stop for a long time, your risk of dementia goes up and it reduces as you move away from the main road. That's Professor Vice Bryce Vissel, who's the head of the Centre for Neuroscience and Regenerative Medicine at St Vincent's in Sydney, speaking with AM this morning about air pollution and the long-term impacts it can have on your life. So are you worried about air pollution and where you live? Maybe you've been exposed to air pollution for an extended time, whether that be through bushfires, smog from trucks, or even coal mines and industrial work sites. Globally, there's increasing evidence that air pollution doesn't just affect you in the short term, it can have long-lasting effects on your physical and your mental health. And long-term exposure to even low levels of air pollution is linked to increased rates of depression and anxiety. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning. Kirsten Diprose joining you from ABC Warnable. Kirsten, we're talking about these pollutants that are emitted into the air when fossil fuels are burned, either from vehicles, power plants, construction equipment, industrial work. All of these things affect the air that we breathe. Good morning to you, Rochelle. Well, it's often dubbed the silent or the invisible killer, really. Scientists have for a long time raised the alarm about pollutants, you know, the impact that they have on physical health, including cardiovascular disease, respiratory infections, Mm. lung cancer and more. But it's a really a tough one for people to pinpoint sometimes because there can be so many other possible contributing factors to things like heart disease and cancer. So it can be hard to prove you've become sick because you live on a main road, for instance. But the research is mounting. You know, a University of Chicago report last year said air pollution now takes more than two years off the global average life expectancy. That's more than cigarettes or alcohol. Mm. And as we just heard in AM this morning and, and just at the start of this show, there appears to be a link between air pollution and an increased risk of dementia now as well. So... I wonder what research, and this is what we'll find out today, is being done locally to address our air pollution. We know that there's an ongoing debate in the western suburbs between trucks and local residents, so we'll touch on that. But then, of course, there's air pollution and the long-term impacts for the residents in Morwell, who lived through a long mine fire back in February 2014. It burned for 45 days. It blanketed that town of Morwell in thick smoke, and some of the ramifications have been long-lasting. So are you worried about air pollution where you live? Or maybe you've moved because of air pollution. This is the Conversation Hour. Are you worried about the air that you breathe? More and more evidence is mounting around the world on air pollution and the impacts that it has on our lives. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host Kirsten Diprose, joining you from ABC Warnable. And in the studio with us as well, Marion Terrell, who is the Grattan Institute's Transport and Cities Program Director. Marion, air pollution is kind of almost your life's work. And in a recent study from Grattan... It claimed that air pollution caused by truck exhausts can cause at least 400 deaths a year in Australia. Is that right? That's a conservative estimate, actually. So there aren't official numbers, but that is our best estimate, and it's probably higher. I, I think it's, it's not surprising that, that truck exhaust causes respiratory conditions. You would expect that um, as people breathe in their nitrogen oxides, called, sometimes called NOx, and fine particulate matter, sometimes called PM2.5. But because air pollution can enter your bloodstream, it's also responsible for diseases right through your body, like coronary heart disease, stroke, bladder cancer, and type 2 diabetes. And children are particularly vulnerable, including when they're in the womb. So I'd say one more thing about this is Mm. even when air pollution isn't responsible for a particular diagnosable disease, it does have subtle and damaging effects on bodies, including cognitive function. 
Marion, do you think we as a society really understand this well? You know, skin cancer, we've had that great campaign about slip, slop, slap, and people do understand the damage that sun can do over time. But air pollution, we don't hear about it. You might marry in a lot, but do you think the rest of society is really cognizant of it enough? I think it is starting to pick up a lot more around the world. Um, And one thing that I've noticed is that the more we learn about the damage done by air pollution, the worse the story gets. So we keep getting the World Health Organization reclassifying um, different uh, exhaust and particulate matter as known carcinogens rather than probable carcinogens and so forth because we're getting we're using better technology to study it and so finding out more. And unfortunately, every time we do that the news ends up being worse. Messages on this already. I live in Altona, 1K from the refinery, 500 metres from Port Phillip Bay. Does the expanse of the bay and the impacts cancel out those of the refinery? That's from Marie. So does kind of sometimes the good outweigh the bad in this? Uh, Well, perhaps. I'm not really sure. But I think um, one thing we do know is that if you um, do reduce air pollution, it does lead to rapid improvements in people's health. So if we were able to to reduce some of the air pollution, which is highly localised, then, um, you know, people do recover and pick up. Let's go to David now, who I believe is in Canada. Uh, David, welcome to the program. Oh, um, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, uh, thanks for, so much, Rochelle. Yeah, I am actually calling from Canada. I'm calling from uh, Saanichton, British Columbia, which is about 20 kilometers north of the capital of British Columbia, Victoria. Um, I'm actually calling to uh, address the issue of a uh, wood smoke, which is a, a significant health problem, not just in Australia, but also here in Canada. Um, wood smoke um, is actually worse for the climate than coal and natural gas, according to a 2014 report from the Partnership for Policy Integrity. Um, It's also much worse than both cigarette smoke and engine exhaust. Um, For example, a laboratory study done at uh, the University of Louisiana found that um, wood smoke is actually 30 times more potent at inducing tumors compared to cigarette smoke, and that the uh, toxic-free radicals uh, Mm. that are found in... um, is anything being done in Canada, David? I know it's it's quite a big issue and it's been discussed yeah. a lot here in Victoria. It's very debated. Those, especially people who are living with asthma, um, will fight hard and strong that wood fires should not be burned. I don't think there's a council yet in Victoria that has taken the steps. I know Darabin was looking very closely at banning wood fires. I know that Bayside City Council was looking really heavily at banning them as well. But the pushback... For from residents, none of them have got through. Oh, yes, that's um, a very significant issue. And uh, we're actually having that uh, same problem here uh, where I live. Um, there's actually a council on here on Vancouver Island. It's uh, the Comox Valley Regional District. And uh, they, they actually um, introduced a um, bylaw that prohibits uh, wood heaters from being installed in new buildings but it got immense pushback from the uh, stove industry, which is the Hearth, Patio and Barbecue Association of Canada. And uh, unfortunately, I believe it was a watered down. So certainly it's um, certainly some leeway is being made, but we are facing a lot of pushback from uh, um, vested interests yeah. and uh, people who just really love burning wood. Oh, it's similar here. Thanks so much for listening from Canada. Marianne Tyrrell, before we get on to trucks and some of the work that's being done by local communities, by the Trucking Association, the Vehicle Association and the Grattan Institute, there is a growing movement for wood smoke, for wood fire smoke that's emitted from people's homes. Is that something that will ever happen, do you think? Are we likely to see bans here? And do we have evidence yet to prove that it is bad for our health? I'm not an expert in this area, but I think it's like truck exhaust in that it's highly localised. So if you are vulnerable in some way and you're close to a source of wood smoke, then it's very problematic for you. But as soon as it stops, then it it does go away. So what David was suggesting about preventing wood fires in new homes seems to me quite a likely path for this to occur around Australia. Is it different in the country, though? I have a wood heater and a lot of us in country Victoria have wood-fired heaters and and love them. Uh, 
you know, we're, we're, our house is a bit further further apart from each other. Yeah, I do think it's different. Um, and and similarly with with trucks, I mean, it's really that um, these uh, concentrated sources of of air pollution and people and con- and dense densely populated areas are a bad mix. But just as, as um, you don't want uh, a lot of truck exhaust in a in a dense urban environment, same with smoke. But in the country, it's different. There is more dilution of the effect and there are fewer people. So there's more freedom, I think, to do it that way. Specifically for Melbourne's west, particularly that Maribyrnong area where we're talking about the truck problem, what are the conditions there that, that make it so bad? I mean, we know we've got the port of Melbourne. Is, is that why we've got that problem? I think by and large, I think um, there's also a lot of construction going on there. But the Port of Melbourne um, inevitably brings about an awful lot of truck traffic. And and one of the things that's really important to know here is that what the, the where this matters is old trucks all trucks are not equal um, a truck sold before 1996 emits at least 60 times as much particulate matter and about eight times as much uh, not nox or nitrogen oxides as a truck sold after 2011 60 times as much so it, it matters a lot because more than a quarter of today's truck fleet is made up of these old trucks and so and more than 14 percent of the of the trucks um on the roads in Australia were manufactured before 1996. So there's some really old trucks on the road and really old trucks are dramatically more polluting than mm. than newer trucks. So is the argument then more about the type of trucks that are on the road as opposed to the amount of trucks that are on the road? Because inevitably what will come up here is supply chain issues, the fact that we need to be, be able to get our goods from A to B. We don't use rail a lot when it comes to transporting our goods. We buy more and more now. We need to transport these things. I don't, I can't think of a fleet that's electric at the moment. So if we were to say ban yeah. old trucks, how far of a solution would that be? I think it would make an enormous difference, and and that's what we've been recommending. Um, it, it, this is it, it seems like a radical idea in Australia because we haven't seen it, but around the world, low emission zones are very common, and um, so w- what I'd like to see is banning trucks that are pre-2003 from the capital city area so that um, just like with the wood stoves that Kirsten was talking about, that they could still operate outside densely populated areas. Um, but where, but basically old trucks and people shouldn't mix. And, and I, I guess recognising what this means for truck operators, we have proposed a truck replacement support fund to help older the, the um, owners and operators of older trucks Who to would transition. Who support that, the government? Yeah, yeah, I think so. The government's already um, putting uh, is putting up some money to this end, um, but I think to go the next step and to say a low emission zone, so we'll to actually ban so it's like a buyback scheme. Yeah, so when you have old dodgy appliances, for example, or when we're trying to get people off gas and onto electric, we have buyback schemes for many things. Is it sort it's, of it's, like it's that? It's just like that. It's just like that because I mean, you don't really want you like you certainly don't want to decimate somebody's business. So it is important to recognise that. But nevertheless. Um, it, the, the cost of, of uh, sort of spewing out um, unnecessarily high amounts of particulate matter um, is just too high for communities. Marion Ter- Terrell is with us. She's with the Grattan Institute Transport and Cities Program as its director. Stay with us, Marion, because Glenn Yates is also with us. He lives in Yarraville and is a Maribyrnong Truck Action Group community member. So, Glenn, welcome to the program. You're you're living this. What's it like where you live? How's the air that you breathe? <laughs> Look, it's um, uh, I guess it's a not, uh, it's a challenge for us every day as a local resident. Um, uh, I'm pretty close to Somerville Road, so one of one of the main um, uh, shuttling roads, if you like, um, with regards to moving containers backwards and forwards between the empty container parks uh, and the port, uh, and then not far away, of course, we have Francis Street. So fairly, I mean, if uh, I guess you you really couldn't be any more in the thick of it. Um, and it's you know it's it certainly is noticeable um, as far as how it can affect you. 
Um, myself now, um, having been diagnosed with uh, asthma uh, two years ago, it's now something I've really got to take note of and be more aware of. Um, equally with my children living um, in the area and going to local schools in the area as well. The rate of asthma is significantly higher, Marion, isn't it, for those particular areas and respiratory diseases with some of the research that Grattan has done. It's shown that postcode matters in these instances. Yes, I think um, the, the research shows that uh, so Maribyrnong's hospital admission rate is more than 70% higher than the Australian average for young people and the inner west has got a higher incidence of lung cancer than the general population so that yeah I, I think we're seeing some of this playing out in those hospitalization rates as a um, an a- adolescent asthma rate 50 percent higher than the state average and so those rates are quite interesting as well because the population in melbourne's west skews slightly younger on average and yet there's higher lung cancer mm. yeah yeah glenn I feel like for as long as I can remember, the fight to get trucks off the road in that part of Melbourne, I can't think of a time when it hasn't been an issue. Has anything progressed? Look, um, good call out. It's um, certainly one that uh, that has been existing now for over over two decades. Um, NTAG started in 2006 um, and have certainly been trying our best to advocate um, uh, just with regards to how we can better manage uh, what it looks like here with regards to truck movements, which which I may add um, are necessary. They they are necessary. And like you called out before, goods do need to move in between the, the ports and the distribution centres. Um, it's how we manage those movements, for want of a better term. Um, with regards to changes in the last 20 years, look, I think... Um, we had some really great conversations with uh, the state government, local government, uh, including Peter Anderson um, from VTA in HVR and so forth recently, just with regards to how we could limit mm. um, the larger vehicles coming through Yarraville, so the multi-combination, so um, specifically A-doubles and B-doubles. Um, so we were able to work collaboratively. With them. Um, well, just, we... Yeah, just working with that. So... But look, as far as is there anything I can pinpoint right now, mm. um, I mean, other than what you called out just before, the $20 million that's been made, made available for scrapping vehicles, um, I mean, it's been announced, I think it's been announced three times now, and the government still actually hasn't worked towards how it's going to be executed within the inner west. I think if, um, if we were to really uh, point a finger at what can be done, I would have to reference the um, the NOS Air Quality um, Community Reference Group. Um, those teams presented a document to the government back in 2020. Uh, it highlights 26 recommendations and 65 um, different uh, ways, at least, that um, or supporting actions that can improve air quality. And the government has that. So okay. we're ready to roll with that. Glenn, stay with us. Time and time again, when we talk about big decisions that need to be made, funding that needs to be thrown around, communities don't wait for the state or federal government. They try and just take action into their own hands because they can't wait. And one thing that Marion has told us and what you've been impressed with is actually how the local group, how the local residents, the Maribyrnong Truck Action Group, have worked alongside and have tried to come up with solutions with the Victorian Transport Association. Peter Anderson is the CEO of that association, is with you now as well. Peter, as I just said, this feels like it's been an issue for as long as I can remember. How are you trying to work with the locals? I know that there's been an alternative fuel summit that's coming up. What can be done to try and change some of these awful statistics that come from living close to bad air pollution? Good morning, Michelle, and thanks for having me on. The Look, the Victorian Transport Association has been working very closely with with MTAG, knowing that we sit in, in a polarised in a polarised world where where um, where they see our world as, as being different than theirs. But but really, we're all part of the same community. We all live in communities, and we all have the same sort of expectations about the standards of living that we want to try and enjoy. Unfortunately, though, of course, with with the port, as you mentioned before, and the activity of heavy vehicles through the inner west. Um, there's a, a large concentration of, of those 
um, internal combustion engine vehicles travelling through that community in high volumes. Around about 10,000 vehicles a day travel through that community. And, and the points that have been raised this morning are, are very relevant to those residents. And, and, it, and it's very sensitive for, for, for them to be able to, to try and change their world around them. But of course, the heavy vehicle industry has to, has to do what it has to do. I mean, a, a truck is a workplace, a truck is a business. And and it isn't so much business over community, it's, it's rather meeting the demands of those other consumers that perhaps don't live in that community um, to, by, by, by moving goods through that, their community. And that's the, that's the real conundrum and paradox that we have in terms of what we're trying to well, achieve. Well, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you think, oh, well, I don't live there, it doesn't affect me, but what we buy and purchase and how it gets to us, we're all a part of this, Kirsten. Oh, yeah, we still well, rely on trucks, don't we? But what, what, what are some of the, the actions that can be taken sort of sooner rather than later, Peter Anderson? Um, you know, we, we heard Marion talk about the old trucks and how problematic they are in terms of their diesel emissions. How do we get some of the old trucks off the road? So, so we worked very closely with MTAG to get a plan together called the Cleaner Freight Initiative that would see a reduction of the, the older trucks um, through the community by by curfews and and an increase in, in and uh, encourage those cleaner trucks with the with the high, with the lower emission uh, engines the newer engines to be able to, to to move more productively through that local area unfortunately it didn't really get off the ground we couldn't get full government support but but it was an initiative where where the two sides got together and, and agreed on on an outcome mm-hmm. which would have been better for the community and and still could be put into place now but but really it's about trying to get those cleaner newer trucks into the system and that's the hard part for us as we move towards decarbonisation and trying to transition out of internal combustion engines as an industry we're finding it very difficult to actually find the resource and, and the ability to, and, and the, and the um, commercial reality for us to be able to do so in, in anything but a very slow way and, and this, this is the problem that we really have. There's a message here that says I lived in Kingsville for 20 plus years traffic is always expected but now we have road trains barrel at speed down the roads built in the 19th century. It's cracking internal plaster in our homes with heritage overlays as they pass. It makes as much sense as landing an A380 at Essendon because it's an, just because it's an airport. Williamstown Road is no longer fit for purpose. The pollution that the volume of chuck generates is literally coats our houses and I assume our lungs. Should some roads just be off limits, Peter? Uh, Rochelle, the roads that we're driving along through the inner west were created some 80, 90 years ago. Um, you, that, those comments are absolutely correct. But, but what this government's done now with the Westgate Tunnel is, is and once that's completed, will take just such a huge volume of, of heavy vehicle traffic off those local roads. It, it, won't, it, it won't eliminate trucks completely from the local roads. There will be curfews, general curfews, 24 or 7 curfews for, for most movements, but there'll be still... still some trucks going have, having to use those local roads, but at a less less at a great lower degree. Of course, the Westgate Tunnel is that solution to to actually try and solve the problems we have with emissions in the inner west. Glenn Yates, you're still with us, listening in yes. as a resident of Yarraville and, and living this. What would you mm-hmm. like to say to, to to Peter and 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 how are you working with the the Transport Association to solve some of these problems? But look, if I can, I'll just refer back to the last statement that Peter made with regards to the Westgate Tunnel project. <clears throat> and certainly uh, on side with the fact that it will remove a lot of traffic, but it will not remove the diesel particulate um, that will be um, settling over uh, Seddon, Kingswell and Yarraville as a result of the two portals and part of the tunnel, which will be unfiltered. Um, so we'll, we'll certainly see a redirection of the traffic. Fantastic. Um, from a uh, I guess a day-to-day living perspective, we would expect to see the roads a lot quieter. However, it's the silent killer, um, for want of a better term, that will be um, settling over the top of the inner west as a result of both those portals being unfiltered. Um, going back to your original question, um, I met with Peter probably about, I reckon, four or five years ago. Um, and as far as how uh, VTA and MTAG have been working together, um, it's been super positive. Uh, historically, there had been some challenges with previous CEOs, but hats off to Peter, who came to MTAG straight away as soon as he took the job um, and, and reached out to us and, and mm. as he's called out, worked as best we can in what most would see an imposing, uh, as an imposing industry. Um, you know, something... 
something that a lot of people don't know. Um, simple things like Peter making suggestions about speed limits in the local area. Um, a great call out to Peter is uh, uh, Francis Street, for example. Um, that was uh, traditionally 60 kilometres, um, and through Peter's feedback and working with local council, that was that was lowered to 50 kilometres, just to make it a little bit more safer, if you like, and add very minimal minimal time to a truck moving from one end to the other. Um, so, it's, from my perspective and from MTAG's perspective, it's been nothing but positive um, with with MTAG and DTA. Well, it's so good to hear that the both of you are working together, and hopefully some of those solutions, you know, it feels like they do get thrown on the table and then nothing happens with them. Glenn Yates, who is a local Yarraville resident and from the Maribyrnong Truck Action Group, he's a community member there. Thank you. And Peter Anderson, the CEO of the Victorian Transport Association, thanks for your time as well. Marion Terrell, Grattan Institute Transport and Cities Program Director, you've been listening to both of that and you've obviously met with both of them and looked at all of their research. Which of the proposals that they're all trying to work together, which would have the most significant impact, do you think? So um, there's sort of two problems here. One is the trucks that are already on the road and one is the new trucks coming onto the road. And so um, I think Peter's talked a bit about the difficulty of, of, of bringing sort of cleaner trucks in, but um, I think we are, the reality is we're dealing with the trucks that are already on the road and that's the the bigger part of the problem because trucks do last for a long time. So I think that the... I basically think getting the old trucks away from the densely populated areas is the the number one thing that would make a difference, um, and and that that's what's known, I guess, around the world as a low emission zone. But call it what you want, but it's really where you exclude the the trucks. We think probably pre two thousand and three trucks from the 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 area where which is densely populated. How long does populated? that transition take? So, if there's been low emission zones done globally in other places, how long does that take? Because as you said, you don't want to destroy people's businesses. Simultaneously, so, so you can you can do it very quickly. Um, I, I think the the main sensitivity in my mind is that you do need to recognise that um, operators um, who might be operating on a bit of a shoestring, who are operating a dirty old truck, they they need some sort of transition path. But they, these are very common. Some some cities have them around ports. Some have them in the the most densely populated parts. But there's hundreds of these throughout Europe, and you've got them in the US and in Japan. They they actually it's not an unusual. It's not a radical solution. And we could do that. Uh, and, and enforcement can be pretty straightforward. So it seems to me that that's the number one thing that would make a big difference to the trucks that are already on the road today. And then there's different measures for getting so that the new trucks coming on stream are better. Um, and and I would say to this end, the federal government has announced that it is going to adopt what they call Euro 6 pollution standards for trucks. So I think that's great, but it does take a long time for the fleet to turn over. And if, if we think about um, uh, sort of electric trucks, well... Oh, that, that was my next question. <laughs> How far away are electric trucks? Oh, I mean, we've put, we're yeah. one of the few states that's put a tax on EVs. I mean, there's not a lot of incentives. They're not cheap to buy. We've got taxes. This is something we should be promoting. So truck technology is somewhere behind car technology. There's very few zero emissions trucks in Australia. And even in Europe, only just over 2% of heavy vehicle sales in 2020 were zero emissions. So they are quite a lot more costly. But I think um, perhaps an, a bigger barrier in some, for some um, people will be the practical barriers. So particularly about refuelling. So that the time it takes, um, like this publicly accessible hydrogen refuelling and charging stations are few and far between and battery electric trucks can be slow to recharge so they're they're suited more to sort of shuttle type runs rather than uh, long haul so you know but there is a they're a part of the solution though aren't they they're, they're a part of the solution yep I was going to ask about hydrogen trucks, but you mentioned that as well because Deakin University is looking into that uh, here in Warrnambool. There's a, a whole project into that. So, you know, it's really exciting stuff. But uh, if you're living it day to day and that they might not be on the roads till a lot later, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard. So are you worried about the air pollution where you live or maybe you've even moved because of air pollution? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Michelle Hunt here with your Melbourne Kirsten Diprose is your co-host this morning, joining you from ABC Warrnambool. We're talking air pollution, and this is something, Kirsten, that actually you generally think affects the city. But air pollution isn't just from trucks. You know, it can be from all sorts of things. It can be from coal mines. It can be from bushfires as well. So this is something that can potentially affect all of Victoria. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're in an industrial area or if you're near a coal mine, then there's all sorts of problems. I think Mount Isa in Queensland is the number one place for air pollution. You know, you've got the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. It's high up there. And for us, of course, the Latrobe Valley um, is, is something, is a place that's really experienced poor air quality, mm. um, and in particular fires in Morwell, which we will talk about in a, in a bit. But looking at all the text messages, Rochelle, about mm. people who have to literally wash down their house, uh, this is in Melbourne's west mainly, uh, because of the grit that comes off um, from you know, the diesel and exhaust. And look, I grew up in, in Western Sydney and I understand a bit about the, that, you know, what you're breathing in. You know, mm. we used to have to run around our school as kids for cross country and breathe in the, the truck exhaust, um, you know, that was going by on on the main road. And I mean, I look back and go, gosh, I can't believe they they let us yeah. do that. It's you know? interesting when you do. I remember moving to living our first flat was on a main road. Previously, we'd been off tucked away in a little court, right? So I hadn't really thought about air pollution, even though I lived in the heart of Melbourne, moved to a main road. And if you didn't wipe down your TV cabinet every couple of days, you could quite literally write your name and it was black you know, on top of your the, the TV cabinet. And it was incredible for me just to see the difference there. But there's a message here. It says, I live in Footscray. I'm in my mid, mid-20s. mid I'm thinking about starting a family in the next few years. I'm starting to feel like maybe I should move. There's the air pollution. There's the danger of truck drivers as well barreling along over the speed limits. Then there's the sound pollution as well. I love living here, but I think I'll probably have to move for the next stage of my life if nothing changes. Marion Terrell is with you in the studio, Grattan's Institute of Transport and Cities Program Director, who has kicked off today's program on air pollution. Let's also welcome into the studio Dr Kate Lysette, who's a Senior Research Fellow at the School of Psychology at Deakin Uni. And Kate, you've been running Australia's first citizen science project, Tracking Air Pollution. Tell us a little bit about what you've been looking at and with who. Good morning, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Um, so the Breathe Melbourne study is situated at six primary schools in Melbourne's inner west. So that's Broombank, Hobsons Bay and the city of Maribyrnong. So these three LGAs we know, as we've been discussing this morning, have really high levels of air pollution. Um, the idea around the project is to empower children as citizen scientists to collect really valuable data for the community, but also to give them the power to learn about science and technology as our future leaders, um, because they'll face so many complex problems where they'll need to have these STEM um, skills to solve those, but also so they can take behaviour change into their own hands. So, for instance, walking on back streets and things like that to prevent themselves from air pollution. So what have they been telling you? Is air pollution something, I mean, primary school, so you're talking about kids aged anywhere from five to, what, 11? Yeah, we've actually targeted the program at grade four to grade six, just so they had those skills. But the kids have been amazing. We've been so surprised. Um, you know, they they know that they're living in these areas. They're worried about it. Um, they tell us what some of the solutions could be. So that's been a really big part of the program. What are their solutions? Um, so things, if one of the really cute things is they've been, um, we've been doing an Idle Off program as part of that. So teaching children to become advocates to teach their parents and the community about leaving their car on at the front of schools so that's one of the things that they've been just a very simple behavior change but we know they can take um, to, to reduce children's exposure to air pollution another one is getting their parents to put the circulate the air in the car so um, they're not breathing bringing the exhaust in from um, outside because of all those dirty trucks that can be very, very potent in that area. Mm. So just things like that. And, you know, um, we've actually been working with Dyson who provided their backpack, um, air quality backpack technology. Um, and they've also created a air pollution resource. So that includes things like learning about fires and all of those things. So these children know that they're living in the area and they, they also want change. And one of the really great things about the project is... Um, these children we're hoping will present to the local government areas, um, to their councillors, but also hoping that the children will have the opportunity to present and tell ministers and people about what they're actually finding. That's fantastic. It's some really great tips there and um, it's hard to refuse children, isn't it? So I like the (laughs) strategies that you've changed. I remember my nan and pa chain smoking in the car (laughs) (laughs) as a kid. (laughs) Things have progressed a little bit. (laughs) 
I want to ask you, uh, Dr. Kate Lysette, about the psychological aspect of that. So they're taking some, um, you know, precautions for their health, but mental health is a, a big factor in this too. Um, research is indicating anxiety and depression linked with air quality. What, what are you trying to do with this particular stu- study? Yeah, it's a really important. Obviously, coming from the School of Psychology and working with children and youth, we know that it's really important that we don't do more harm. So absolute principle was do no harm, make this safe, make this fun. So um, that was the, the number one principle. We actually had children doing a lot of things like we also collected air pollution on plates and things and they mm. used a microscope to look at that. Um, so really, we really tried to engage them so it was fun and not make it too scary. Um you know, when we're talk- you don't want them to go home and say we've got to move. Exactly, and that's not that's not feasible. What we need to do is we need to make this community safe for these children. It's their little lungs; they're the ones that are affected the most. So we really, really must act to ch- to change this. I mean, there's interesting. There's a text here that says, "Please don't put the responsibility onto children." That's all about anxiety and no power. I mean, you would have to really be careful yeah. about the language that you use uh, and the impact that it may have on them. Absolutely, and we've been we've been very safe. So we talk about air quality. There are air quality scientists, um, and you know, we've shown them maps, for instance, of hotspots on their way to and from school, so they can look at those and identify the areas. Um, but you know, we know from the Breathe London study that this is a sister study that we didn't they didn't do any harm. Children actually loved it. They engaged in it. We need to. It, it's like climate change. I think it's quite a similar yeah, parallel. And they know. Exactly, Marion. We've spoken about zones, exclusion zones. How high up on the top of the list are schools when it comes to looking at exclusion zones for air pollution? I would have thought very high. I think schools, uh, hospitals. Um, aged care homes, like anywhere where there are, uh, like everyone is at, at risk, but uh, people who are more vulnerable already are at greater risk. So children and, and people with chronic illnesses. Marion, are we treating this as a society as a public health mm. issue enough? I mean, you know, you come at it from, a, I suppose, a, a transport and cities perspective, but it's a public health issue. It is related to climate change as well. How, how, how are we thinking about this? Are we, are we looking at it from all the sides it needs to be? Probably not. I think one of the, the, the real challenges with air pollution is it's invisible or largely invisible. And so, it, and, and we, I think, traditionally haven't known as much about it as we do now. So it, I think it has been quite difficult. And it's also, as Kate said, it's like um, it's, you've got to be feasible. It's got to be practical um, given that people live where they live. What is it that you could... And given that uh, truck operators have got the trucks they've got, what can you do? So I, I think it, it is quite difficult. Uh, it, in some ways, it's like carbon emissions, but it is also quite fundamentally different in the sense that air pollution is highly localised, whereas with... Uh, carbon emissions, it sort of doesn't really matter where you do them. They're everywhere. Um, but but I think with, with uh, truck pollution, it matters a lot where you do it. Sometimes, like, air, can, air pollution can travel. Um, I, I, I know this from where I grew up. There was a, a strange thing in Sydney where the smog from the east ends up settling due to the winds um, in the west, and it's always been that way. Um, and so, so, so you can have a situation of smog going from one area to another. Is have you heard much about that, Marion? Um, I yeah, probably Kate is more the expert on this, but certainly we do see it in the, in the more extreme events. Like people might remember when there was a volcano in Iceland, mm. um, and uh, planes around the world got grounded because of the particulate matter from that volcanic eruption that came up through a glacier. So all of this can happen um, and can be well beyond the local area. But I think a lot of what we're talking about is probably more localized than that. Is it something where it's going to take? A class action, you know, for, for change to occur where groups in, within a community all get together, can prove that they've got some kind of health issues, some kind of concerns that can often span over generations because of inaction? I hope not. I hope that we can have action soon. I think we've come to the tipping point of the health. You know, we are seeing, I think this really is a public health issue. If we look at the burden of disease caused by sun exposure, a big environmental risk, it's 1.2%. It's the same from air pollution in Australia, yet we're not talking about it. 
um, we really need to talk about it. In London, there's the case of Ella Kissing Deborah. So it's the first girl who on her birth certificate sadly has air pollution linked as the reason she died. So oh there are goodness. places, I mean, that's extreme, right? That's, you know, I'm not saying that we're experiencing that in Australia at all. But we do know that low levels of air pollution are associated with poor health outcomes and not just respiratory cardiovascular. Well, we haven't touched on our mental health yet and the, exactly. the links with depression and anxiety. Mm. Is that something that you've looked into? Yeah, we have. So um, there are studies around the world now coming out showing more in adults, there's probably more literature um, showing that it is associated. We've done a study across Australia looking at greenness and air pollution and we we did see some associations with cognitive health um, for teenagers um, who are in low green areas with air pollution exposure and there's more and more data growing in this field. So dementia, Parkinson's and those things, uh, we're seeing those now. So I think, I, you know, it's been 20 years. I do think, you know, we need to do something now in these areas. And I think the overwhelming weight of health data is now here. We've reached a tipping point and I think it is a public health issue. Are you worried about air pollution where you live? Have you moved because of air pollution? Dr Kate Lysett is in the studio. So is Marion Terrell from the Grattan Institute. Please stay with us. Uh, let's bring in Matthew Carroll now, who's the co-principal investigator for the Hazelwood Health Study with Monash Rural Health. And that was looking at the psychological trauma suffered by Morwell residents following that fire in 2014. 45-day-long mm. coal fire. I remember it well. Uh, I was sitting here on the opposite side of the state as a, a regional reporter, but um, checking in every day with the reporters in Morwell because it was a tough time for them as it was the entire community. Matthew, welcome to the program. Thank you, Kirsten. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, there's certainly been quite a lot of um, research now about the, the mental health impacts following the mine fire. So we know that there was an increase in accessing health services, so ED presentations and ambulance call-outs for mental health-related concerns. We know there's evidence of an increase in mental health-related drugs following the mine fire. We particularly looked at levels of distress in, in, in the Morewell community compared to Sale as our control community, and we found there was a clear step increase between level of exposure to the mine fire mm. and, and reported um, level of distress three years after the event and i could imagine it would be long Sorry. lasting because when you read through just some of the action that had to be taken whether it be from just local residents or from the school and wearing masks or saying don't go outside or being shipped uh, as like bust to other areas so you could go to school and there was so much fear and rightly so surrounding this fire and if you think about a, a small child for example and how that fear may impact them that would be long lasting so this could potentially have big impacts for people Matthew. Oh there's no doubt about it we have broadened our scope and we've also looked at NAPLAN educational outcomes and we looked at the years leading up to and then compared them with the years following the mine fire and we found clear evidence that there was a d decrease in educational performance Gosh. in Morewell students compared to students from elsewhere in the valley and the wider region. There was something like a four or five month delay and that was still evident or hadn't fully resolved after about four years. So yeah. that's a, a very long-term effect which could then Im Im impact their, their outcomes going further because it was, you know, impact on their educational outcomes. These studies are, are so useful to then be able to demonstrate those longer-term effects. How do you help, I suppose, communicate this? Because one, one thing we haven't really said, but I think we all kind of know, is the the equity issues when it comes to air pollution. It's often the lower socioeconomic yeah. people who are affected by <laughs> air pollution because they're living near the coal mine or the arterial road. How, how can you use this study, Matthew? Yeah, it's, it's really important. There was a lot of talk at the time about people should relocate from the region, but it's not easy to relocate when you don't have the socioeconomic capacity to do so. Um, so we work really closely with the local stakeholders. So following the mine fire, they established an innovation zone and a health assembly, which is made up of, of key people from the community. So we work very closely with them to talk about what our findings mean um, and that's actually in, in improved their their targeting. So they've now done work to do with asthma management, to do with healthy eating, sorry, healthy eating, which is one of the things that we've found. And we're also working closely with the 
the, the local and with the, the wider Gippsland emergency management planning people to try and inform future plans so that you don't just focus on a, a fire event, you also consider the smoke aspect of it, which up until Hazelwood and then probably yeah. m more the black summer, people didn't realise that smoke by itself could be a major impact. But now we all do because black summer impacted 80% of the population. And when we talk about this, we know that it's the community that come together to try and help each other or to form solutions. And Voices of the Valley was created as a result of that particular fire. And now they are this incredible voice and community for so many other issues for the Valley. Just finally, Matthew, when you look at, I mean, first of all, congratulations on the work that you do. I mean, the Valley is so close to my heart and I just feel like they get hard done by all the time and get forgotten all the time and it's a disgrace quite frankly and for something like this to have occurred and for the imp the long-lasting impacts that will you know be lifelong for some families what can we take from it leading into this summer there's already predictions that there is going to be a potential high risk of bushfires this summer how do we take what you've learned and do we future proof for for, for you know uh, for forthcoming bushfires well, the, the challenge is that a lot of the advice is to, to avoid exposure, and that can be difficult because PM 2.5 can enter into any building. So while you might stay inside for a while, if you reduce your exposure, you're also reducing your physical activity, and that can have mental health outcomes. So you've got to try and find a balance. What I think we learned from COVID was that there's much more recognition of the value of air filtration, and we've now got a lot of air filters sitting in corners that maybe we should bring them back out again um, and, and make them a standard thing. And particularly, there's a lot of research now about schools and having air filters as, as a, as a yeah. permanent thing in schools to try and reduce that exposure. Mm. Matthew Carroll, thank you so much for joining us. Matthew Carroll there, co-principal investigator for the Hazelwood Health Study with Monash Rural Health. I think raising COVID there, I think we now have a greater understanding of the stress that would have occurred when people were locked in their houses over yeah. that 45 days and school was disrupted and life was disrupted and masks were being worn. But we the outside get it was now. dangerous. I think that's the thing th that would stick with me, that you can't go outside because it's dangerous to mm. go outside and the impacts that that would have on young kids. It just breaks your heart. Yeah, yeah. Matthew is in Gippsland, actually, and Thorpedale. Um, hi, Matthew. Yes, Hi. Um, I've been in inner Melbourne all of my life and then lifelong asthma problems, also living in a house with gas appliances. Now I'm in Thorpedale, there is no pollution and six weeks later my asthma has dissipated. Oh. I'm no longer on all the medication and it's, it's purely and simply getting away from all the pollution as far as my doctors can tell me. Isn't that mm. incredible? And I, I remember lots of people are told when they have asthma to move. And what a beautiful place in Thorpedale. Just used to live at the base of Thorpedale, Matthew. And that red mud, the spud mud, as we'd call it up in Thorpedale. How, how is it living in Thorpey? Well, you know, it's just fantastic. The local community is fantastic. We had the winter fest the other day up at um, Merbu North. Yep. But the pollution is close to zero. Yeah, and, and a very fine pool at Merbu North, by the way. So if you ever want to go swimming, the, the local Merbu <laughs> pool is, is just gorgeous. We are talking air pollution on the Conversation Hour this morning. Marion Terrell is with you from Grattan Institute. Dr Kate Lysette is with you as well, a Senior Research Fellow at the School of Psychology with Deakin University. Kate, a lot of people are just sending messages then saying, well, then just don't live there. Right, move away. Why move there? Is it as simple as that? Definitely not. So people have, you know, moved there to raise a family. I was actually one of those people seven years ago. Um, you know, you get, you, you know, you, it's a beautiful area to live in terms of the community. You know, every child who is born should have the right to clean air, I say. So every postcode, it shouldn't matter where you're born. And I guess, you know, I don't want to be too doom and gloom because we do have solutions for this. So what we should be doing is trying to clean up the air around where people live so they don't have to move. People don't have the financial resources often to move. You invest a lot of money in a house, so it's really hard. And people have reasons that they live in those areas, families, jobs, um, and that's just not a solution. And I often, when people say the trucks were here first, you know, blah, 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 well, I go back to those epidemiological studies on smoking. So that was, you know, you, those first studies, we ignored them and we didn't do about it, anything about it. We took a really long time. I think we're now having an epidemic of, 
of air pollution. We we know it's there. We need to do something about it. And I see the parallel is quite is quite strong. Yeah, communities change over time, don't they? And those truck routes might have been there in those residential areas, but the population's gone up. The mm. More trucks, all of those things. Uh, Kate and Marion, I'll leave it to you to be able to answer perhaps this question from Steve in Forest Hill. Hi, Steve. What would you like to ask? Uh, hello. Yes, can you hear me? I'm just outside. Yes, yes, you're on air, Steve. What was your question? Oh, that's okay. Um, just uh, as I go up to the Dandenongs, um, I'll go to uh, Alinda, Sassafras or Belgrave and um, I'll just feel tremendous for a little, you know, a few hours out. And then as I come down back to the foothills, down into Ferntree Gully, I'll start getting itchy, rashy, uh, yawning. So those sort of... Um, symptoms where you know you just feel lethargic and um it happens quite often so as i go up with altitude mm. i'll feel better and as i come down so i was wondering whether there's a relationship between particulates and altitude oh, i'm not sure maybe it's just the beautiful clean air up in in the dandenongs would you think maybe i guess so um i mean the good news is that the as you move into less polluted areas, it does lead to rapid improvements in your health and perhaps mm. that's what you're seeing there. Just finally, ladies, to, to wrap the hour, Marion, the Grattan Institute has done so much work and research. We have bodies and bodies of evidence. You've got yours that's growing now as well from the School of Psychology at Deakin. We have the solutions. Why aren't they being acted on? Is this something because... Governments are scared to be the one to take that first step because you don't know where or how it's going to end. Why is there such inaction? I have wondered if it's been a, tied up with the issue of carbon emissions, which has been very politicised. Um, so the idea of switching to electric trucks, we know that it will dr it will dramatically reduce exhaust pipe air pollution and so people's health will improve when that happens. But um, I, I guess in the meantime, there um, you know, there's a, a lot of a long period of people's health being damaged and I think governments have just um, got away from taking practical steps but that they are there as you say like it's, it's straightforward you can look overseas it's not a big deal so we could be doing so much more and I think it's just that we've, we've sort of uh, it, it's an invisible um, problem perhaps is part of it. Yeah, and I guess one of the things we're hoping from the Breathe Melbourne study is we'll have this really fine detail to show people where the hotspots are. So hopefully that can inform some government decisions um, in terms of what happens. Um, yeah, I think there's a, a range of, of different reasons, um, but I do think we're really at a tipping point. And I, whenever I talk about air pollution, I also say if we can reduce air pollution, it, it's number one, it's a health problem, but it's also the, the climate change issue too. So it would be doing the world, uh, you know, a world of good to, to act on it. And I wonder if that's why it doesn't get spoken about as a specific issue because it's just kind of been bundled in to climate change and it hasn't been given those specific focus. So many texts coming through from people who have decided to move, especially when they're thinking about starting a family. Here's just one. I'm a dad in Footscray. My kids have just started school. My partner and myself have decided to move away and change the kids' school. Today's conversation was started because of you, Marion Terrell. This was your idea. This is your life's work to come in and to talk about this. So we thank you for your research and for spending some time with us today on the Conversation Hour. Grattan Institute Transport and Cities Program Director. Also, Dr Kate Lysette, Senior Research Fellow at the School of Psychology with Deakin Uni. Best of luck with this citizen project that you're working on and uh, we wish you all the best. So thanks so much. Thanks very much. Kirsten Diprose, as always, co-host joining us from ABC Warrnambool. You've got lovely, fresh, clean air to breathe down there in Warrnambool. I'm very fortunate. Yes, we do. And look, I think this conversation, no longer invisible, no longer silent, this killer, I think we've, we've really got to keep that in mind and so it's been wonderful to, to focus on this for an hour thanks Rochelle